All right, once again, we are looking at, uh, at the book of Proverbs this morning uh, for more wisdom from this incredibly valuable book. And it's been uh, very encouraging to me over the last couple of weeks hearing some of you uh, talking about ways that the book has uh, helping you and sinking in, beginning to affect even the choices that you're making in everyday life, uh, which of course is the whole point. Uh, that's why we're doing this. Uh, Proverbs is a book that provides a lot of practical guidance uh, for how we are to live each day in a wiser and more God-honoring manner. And so today, we're going to be considering what Proverbs says about envy. Uh, now, when we talk about a subject like envy, you might just sort of automatically turn your brain off. Uh, because, I mean, c- come on, is this really uh, that big of a deal? Now, why does it matter if I want something that belongs to someone else? Uh, and I really do feel that objection myself. Even as I was preparing the sermon, I kept kind of asking myself that question. Uh, every time I've ever read through the uh, Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, uh, the last one on the list always just sort of seemed odd to me. Uh, you know, don't murder. Okay, I get that. Don't steal. Uh, don't, don't bear false witness. But then you get to that last one and it says, don't covet something that belongs to your neighbor. And I just sort of scratched my head. Like, how did that make the top 10? Uh, you know, if I was writing down the top 10 important commandments to live your life in, in a society, uh, I would put murder, I would put stealing, those would make the list. But I have a hard time understanding why is it such a big deal? If you look at your neighbor's house and you think, I'd kind of like to have that house. Not like you're stealing it. You're just sort of thinking about how it would be. And so how is that such a problem? Now, because of this sort of internal objection I had to my own sermon on envy, uh, and I assume maybe some of you might have similar thoughts, I'm going to spend a little bit more time than I usually do uh, in the introduction just to try and prove that envy really is a big deal and that it's far more destructive of a habit uh, than we realize. And so we'll get to Proverbs here in a minute, but before we do, uh, let me just try to make the case for why we're even taking the time to talk about this issue and why it's something that you should attack anywhere you see it in yourself. Uh, First, as always, a definition, so we kind of know what we're talking about here. Uh, Envy is a feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or luck. That's one definition. Here's another one. Envy is a painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another, joined with a desire to possess the same advantage. And then here's one more. Envy is a feeling of discontent or covetousness with regard to another's advantages, success, or possessions. So there's a few things involved in all of those definitions of envy. One is discontentment. Uh, I'm not okay with my current circumstances. I want that thing that someone else has. Uh, Another layer of envy, then, is a sort of disdain that we can often develop over the fact that someone else has that thing that we're desiring. So if I don't get to have it, I don't want you to have it either. Uh, Not only do I want that thing, and I'm upset that I don't have it, I'm discontent, but also I'm a little bit upset with you for having it. And so as all of these definitions explain, there's a little bit of resentment. It's not just that I'm unhappy that I don't have it. There's also a little bitterness towards those who do. And then also, as these definitions explain, this could really be applied to a lot of different areas. So it's not just possessions, although it could be. It could be a talent someone else has, an opportunity that they have, or just success 
in a certain area of life that you desire. We could envy others for a lot of different reasons. Now, when we look from a biblical perspective, of course, the place to start is with that 10th commandment where God very clearly wrote on tables of stone these words, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So don't desire that which belongs to someone else. One reason that I think God is so concerned with this particular sin is he knows how dangerous and far-reaching the consequences of envy can be. Uh, Envy, after all, was the original sin. And I'm not talking about Adam and Eve here, although we'll get to them in a minute. I'm talking about the sin of Satan himself. As an angel in the presence of God, he envied God. He wanted for himself the position and the glory and the worship that belonged to God. Now, we've talked about definitions. Let's go a little bit deeper, though, because it's easier sometimes to read definitions and think abstractly uh, without necessarily recognizing this in your own heart. And so let's try to get a feel for what does envy look like in my day-to-day living. Here are a few ways that you and I can know if we are committing the sin of envy. Number one, desiring what others have. This is the most obvious form of envy. When you look at something or uh, whether, again, whether it be a possession, an opportunity, success, whatever it is, something that someone else has and you desire that. But how about this? This one is probably, I think, a little bit more common, maybe, and a little more subtle. Being upset when something good happens to someone else because it didn't happen to you. So somebody at work gets a raise, and you start to feel a little bit bitter towards them as if they they did something wrong. Uh, Or maybe if you're single, you start to notice and get really annoyed when someone else your age gets married. Uh, Or... Maybe you're unable to have children, and every time one of your friends uh, gets pregnant, you feel a little bit of resentment towards them. Now, in all three of those scenarios, there's nothing inherently wrong with desiring those things. Okay, I would love a raise at work. Uh, That'd be great. Uh, Desiring marriage, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a very healthy thing. Uh, Married couples wanting to have kids, of course, that's a good thing. No problem with those desires. And it can be painful. When you have that desire and it goes unmet for a long period of time, that's, of course, understandable. But when you cross that line to where now you're starting to be upset at the fact that someone else is getting something you're not, and you start to feel a certain bitterness or resentment towards them, that is the sin of envy. And it's not just wanting something, it's it becomes not wanting others to have that thing that you want. Uh, Here's another way that envy manifests itself in our lives. Uh, Feeling a bit of satisfaction or even joy when someone more fortunate than you experiences something negative. So again, this is an aspect of envy that not only wants something for myself, but I don't want that thing for others if I can't have it. Okay, so uh, let's just get an example of this. You're single, you want to get married, hasn't happened yet. Someone that you know gets married, and then within a short time, they get a divorce, and you kind of start to feel good about it. Uh, You kind of feel a certain satisfaction that it didn't work out for them. Or maybe someone at work gets a really big promotion that you wanted, and then after a while, they get laid off or something. When you hear the news, you're a little bit pleased. That's envy. 
So you see in those last two points there especially that envy really is the opposite of the attitude that Christians are supposed to have. Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Envy turns that on its head. Envy causes us to weep when others are rejoicing and rejoice at their weeping. It's a really ugly and unchristian attitude. One more thing to say about identifying envy is it often hides behind facades, like justice, for example. Uh, It's not that I'm jealous of that other person, and that's why um, I'm happy now at their misfortune. No, I'm just glad to see them getting what they deserve. I'm I'm concerned with fairness. Uh, We don't usually say those things transparently, but that's the sort of logic that we use to justify what is really just envy. Uh, Now, I said earlier, I think envy is a bigger deal than we realize. That's for two primary reasons. First, envy is a big deal because of what it causes us to do to others, the way that we treat other people. And then secondly, envy is a big deal because of what it does to us. So first, what does envy cause us to do to others? Again, we're going to be deviating from Proverbs for a few minutes here. But just to look at one proverb, chapter 27, verse 4 says, Wrath is cruel. And anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? So, of course, we all understand wrath can lead to cruelty. Uh, anger can lead to you know, oppressing other people and mistreating them. But this proverb is telling us that jealousy has just as much destructive power as anger. Jealousy or envy can drive people to act against one another. And we see this illustrated all over Scripture. And so now we're going to look at four very quick biblical examples. There's a lot more that we could look at, uh, but each of these texts mentions the sin of envy either explicitly or it sort of peels back the curtain and lets us see the thinking behind the people involved here. So to start with, Genesis chapter 4. As we've said already, envy was the original sin of Satan, but envy also led to the first murder. Genesis 4, verse 1, Adam knew his wife Eve. She conceived, bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And right there is where we begin to see uh, what's been called the green-eyed monster of envy rising up in Cain. Uh, Notice what God says to Cain in verse 6. The Lord says to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God was addressing Cain's problem, what he had done wrong and how he could fix it. Uh, But Cain, as we'll see, wasn't concerned with improving himself. His anger was now directed at Abel, uh, which really doesn't make any sense, right? Abel didn't do anything to Cain. Abel didn't harm Cain in any way. But Cain is mad at him because his sacrifice was accepted and Cain's wasn't. So verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, while they were in the field. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. 
Next, 1 Samuel 18. This is right after David kills Goliath. So David is a young man here, and uh, Saul is reigning as king over Israel. And verse 6 says, As they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, uh, speaking of Goliath, the woman came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. There's the envy. Uh, Saul could have rejoiced in the fact that God had used David to kill Goliath and deliver Israel from the Philistines. But instead, as he's hearing the praise that David was getting, it drove Saul to envy. And from that day on, Saul spent most of the rest of his life trying to kill David. David, again, never did anything to Saul. He was nothing but kind and respectful towards him. But Saul's jealousy, his envy of David, drove him mad. 1 Kings 21, verse 1, here's the third incident we'll look at. It says, Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father. So he basically says, it's not for sale. Verse 4. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth, the Jezreelite, had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. There's the envy. Ahab is now mad because he doesn't get to have what Naboth has, which is, again, so ridiculous. Here's the king of Israel, uh, the most powerful, wealthy, privileged person in the country. He could have pretty much whatever he wanted. And yet, he's upset because he doesn't get to have that one vineyard that he wanted. Verse 5, Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? He said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And basically you read the rest of the story. They come up with a clever plot to have Naboth killed. And then Ahab takes possession of his vineyard. Last example of envy. This one might surprise you. Matthew 27, verse 17. When they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. The crucifixion of Jesus was rooted in the sin of envy. It was out of envy that the religious rulers handed Jesus over for execution. Jesus hadn't broken any laws. Uh, Pilate knew that. He repeatedly said he was an innocent man. It was because Jesus had a following. He had influence over crowds of people. 
And the Pharisees and Sadducees became jealous, and so they wanted him dead. Envy is a big deal. It's a big deal because of what it causes us to do to other people. It was the original sin of Satan. It was the sin that led to the first murder, and it was the very sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. Envy is dangerous because it can lead us to do terrible things to others. Now, maybe we won't murder someone, but we'll mistreat them. We'll tarnish their reputation. We'll lie about them. We'll treat others terribly if we allow envy a hold in our hearts. Next, not only is envy dangerous because of what it can lead us to do to others, but envy is also dangerous because of what it does to us. Uh, Back to Proverbs, this time in chapter 14, verse 30. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Uh, Envy isn't just destructive when we act on it and do something wrong to the person we envy. No, even if it stays in our heart, even if it stays contained and it's just a mental feeling of resentment towards someone else, envy eats away at us. It's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Uh, Envy steals our joy. It causes us to be discontent. Envy really is its own punishment. It's kind of a dumb sin in that way. Uh, Envy only hurts you. The person that you're envious of isn't being affected at all. Uh, They're going on about their day having no idea you're upset. Meanwhile, the envy is sucking the joy out of your life. So envy is a big deal. It can lead us to act with animosity against other people. And even if it stays contained in our own hearts, it can slowly eat away at us, driving us to be discontent and upset with others, really, for no good reason. So now let's look at a few more Proverbs on the subject of envy, see what we're instructed to do. First of all, Proverbs 24, verse 1 says, very simply, Be not envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. For their hearts devise violence, and their lips talk of trouble. So this is one uh, kind of envy that we haven't really talked about yet. That is envying evil people, meaning you see someone... Uh, doing things that are wrong, but they seem to be getting away with it. Uh, Nothing bad is happening to them, and so you can begin to envy their lifestyle. Uh, Maybe it's rich, powerful people committing all sorts of evil acts, and yet they never seem to experience negative consequences for their actions. Proverbs tells us not to envy those who live in sin and temporary pleasure. Uh, Get your mind off of that. Here's another proverb along the same lines, chapter 23, verse 17 says, let not your heart envy sinners, <clears throat> but continue in the fear of the Lord <clears throat> Excuse me, all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. So this verse, this, these Proverbs are telling us, don't envy sinners because their day is coming. You focus on fearing the Lord, following his ways, and you will have an eternal future. And the implication there being uh, that the evil person that you're Uh, envying their sinful lifestyle, uh, it's not over for them. Uh, Here's a similar idea again. Chapter 24, verse 19 says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked. For the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put off. So uh, as you put those two Proverbs together, it says you live in the fear of the Lord, you follow his ways, you have a future, you have a hope. But the evil person has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. So don't look at the temporary 
uh, appearances, when you look at someone who seems to be getting away with uh, indulging in their sinful lifestyle, don't, you know, you're not seeing the whole picture. So don't be envious of them. Fear the Lord and be content with the life that God has given you. You have a future, you have a hope that the wicked don't have. Next, chapter 24, verse 17 of Proverbs, just a few verses before this, this whole section is really concerned with uh, envy. Verse 17 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. Uh, Here we're talking again about that aspect of envy where we get a little bit of satisfaction out of something negative happening to the person that we envy. Rejoicing when others weep. And Proverbs says to fight that instinct. Don't let your heart go there. That kind of attitude is displeasing to the Lord. And as we said, it's really the opposite of the way Christians are supposed to be. Ultimately, envy flows out of a discontent heart. We see what someone else has and we're not content with not having it ourselves. And so the antidote to envy is contentment. Proverbs 30, verse 7. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Uh, What a healthy prayer that is. To pray to the Lord and say, give me what I need and help me to be content with that. And of course, this is exactly how Jesus instructed us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Help me not to look at others with envy, because if you and I are truly content with what God has given us and the blessings that we enjoy, then we can rejoice. Even when others are experiencing something good that we don't have, we can genuinely rejoice with them in that. It shouldn't bother us to see someone else being blessed. As Elizabeth Elliot said, God has promised to supply our needs. What we don't have now, we don't need now. Learn to just not care if others are more successful than you, if others have opportunities and things that you don't get to have. Instead, rejoice in the life that God has given you, the joys that are a part of your everyday life. If you focus on the lives of others, you end up missing out on the great aspects of your own life. Uh, This is, again, getting back to that point from uh, earlier where envy sort of just sucks the joy out of our life. We become obsessed and focused with what others have that we don't, and we miss out on the joys that we experience. Uh, There's no greater example of this exact kind of thing than Adam and Eve. I mean, it's the most extreme example of discontentment. Here they are in paradise. I mean, everything is perfect. God has created this good world for them to enjoy. He's provided every need that they have. Everything was great, and yet it wasn't good enough for them. They were discontent because one fruit was off limits. I mean, just think about how absurd that was. They could have had it all. They could have enjoyed the garden and the perfect world that God had made for them, but instead they focused on the thing that they didn't have, that one thing that was off limits to them. And in the process, They missed out on everything good that was in their possession. Again, sort of like King Ahab, uh, the rich and powerful man, yet he's so bothered that he can't have that one vineyard that he wants. And so he comes home and refuses to eat. 
He's making himself miserable, even though he has more riches and privileges than anyone in Israel. The happiest people aren't the ones with the most money or the best health or the fanciest cars or houses. It's rather the person who has learned to be content. They choose to enjoy the life that they have instead of obsessing about the things that they don't have. Uh, This is why you can go to third world countries with way less stuff and way worse living conditions and you'll find some of the happiest people in the world. And then you come back to America where we have all the pleasures and comforts unknown throughout the history of the world and depression and suicide rates are at an all-time high. Uh, Consider the following countries. Ask yourself, which one would I rather live in? Haiti, India, Pakistan, North Korea, Yemen, China, Mexico, Iran, Iraq, America. What would you think if I told you that on that list, the place with the highest suicide rate is America? In some cases, it's by a long shot. Uh, The suicide rate in America is more than double that of Afghanistan, for example. Now, how can we possibly explain that? How does that happen? Uh, Certainly, there's a lot of factors involved. But in some of these places where violence and poverty and sickness, just miserable living conditions are so rampant, how is it that depression and suicide would be higher here than there? Again, there's a lot of factors involved, no doubt, but at the very least we can conclude that money and higher standards of living do not produce joy. That's not the answer. Instead, we ought to learn to rejoice and love the life that we have. Whatever joys you get to experience, enjoy them to the fullest. Uh, As Paul wrote, God has given us all things richly to enjoy. So stop and enjoy the good gifts that God has given to you. Proverbs 24, verse 13, My son Eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. You might read something like that and wonder, why is that in the Bible? I mean, why does uh, this book of wisdom tell us, enjoy some honey sometimes? There's a lot in Proverbs about discipline and working hard and all of that, but there's also wisdom in just stopping once in a while to do something that you enjoy. Stop and enjoy simple moments. Learn to enjoy little things. Uh, Don't become the person who's so bored with simple pleasures that you need something elaborate and expensive to bring you happiness. That kind of mindset will lead you down the road of discontentment and envy where you'll never be satisfied. So the antidote to envy is contentment. Get your eyes off of what others have. Focus on what you have. Stop envying others' lives and start enjoying your own. One more, proverb, uh, <clears throat> one more proverb before we close here. Chapter 15, verse 15. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. Better is little, little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. So these Proverbs are telling us, even if you don't have much, even if your life is not as uh, fancy and rich and privileged as as others, you can have a great life if you cultivate a cheerful heart. Better is a dinner of herbs, a very scanty meal where there's love. The cheerful of heart has a continual feast, no matter what he has to eat. 
And so can I close just by quoting C.S. Lewis again? I know it's getting out of control. Almost every sermon now has a C.S. Lewis quote, but I got to hit my quota. Uh, Anyway, in one of the Narnia books, I think it's The Horse and His Boy, Lewis writes this, For this is what it means to be king, to be first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate retreat. And when there is hunger in the land, as must be now and then in bad years, to wear finer clothes and laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land, that is a cheerful heart. The cheerful heart has a continual feast, even when they don't have much, even when it's a dinner of herbs set before you. You can have love and joy in the midst of it. So resist the temptation to envy others and learn instead to cheerfully embrace the good gifts that God has given to you. In other words, learn to love the life that you have rather than desiring the life that you don't. Let's pray.